This is Andrew Faust. I'm here with Lisa DePiano. We're hanging out in my apartment here in Williamsburg after teaching a permaculture design course together. And, well, honestly, I kind of sat in a sound booth and just listened to Lisa teach all day long. And really excited to have Lisa here because, you know, she's somebody who I really admire and look up to a lot of the work that she's done. And she, uh, for instance, was just here in uh, Times Square doing something with a bunch of, uh, you know, business people, professionals, thinking about how do we start to make Broadway something that's more people-friendly and human-friendly. And Lisa and I together co-crafted a lot of the scaling up permaculture work that I'm so ambitious about where we need to start to think about how do we really bring permaculture design to the people? What does that look like to kind of, uh, you know, make it more of what I think we both are drawn to it. Uh, what I call it's like subversive character. How do we really create a new culture within the midst of a culture that at present is so fraught with so much that's so problematic that we could go on about. But rather than dwell on the problems, it's often more compelling to begin to articulate what are the solutions? And a lot of Lisa's work has been in this area of participatory design, community building. Uh, one of her case studies that I always love having her come in and share with our class is about a CSA that's done on public land that is under a conservation easement and is a lease-use version of farming and begins to set an example of how do we do integrated permaculture design where we have community members help create the design, think about what the farm looks like, and really create patterns of use that can continue after we are in a place and begin to be instrumental to setting an example of a new way of living in the landscape, a way that says we all live here together, could we now start to co-create another way forward, even in the midst of somewhere as high density and high use as Times Square, which is where Lisa's work has now taken her into the midst of that particularly intense landscape where people are very interested in these ideas of how do we bring nature in? How can we really, in a way that's uh, deceptively simple, like having some plants in a place that is so devoid of any vegetation, begins to have very profound symbolic as well as very tangible effects on the population, and so uh, really honored by a lot of the work that Lisa does and how do we start to really make this accessible to people who might feel like they can't 
really engage with creating a better world, like what does that look like in places that apparently it would seem very uh, difficult to achieve. I thought maybe we could talk some about education, uh, your work in these urban environments, and how do we really bring this to the people? How do we how do we uh, create a better, not so disastrous economy and infrastructure and yeah, so anything you'd like to share and get into about the work you're doing these days, please do so. Thanks, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to come down, visiting you in New York City again, and interact with a lot of the great students in the, in the classes here, and, and really a, a lot a lot happened from these classes, kind of seeded out lots of different ideas and projects into the into the city and into the whole region. So, yeah, I like, I like to say that I'm, I'm in part in recovery from the suburbs. And I often start classes by just sharing that. And um, grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia in a place that wasn't very walkable, that wasn't really hospitable to people, really knowing each other, really any kind of identity of a place. Um, and really come from a, a family, you know, part of my family are immigrants from Italy, and I uh, got to actually go visit that place. And I was traveling in the, in, the, in the late 90s. I got to go see the village that my father was from, and just really what a different place that was. And just, you know, everyone knowing each other, and people kind of walking around, and I went with, and went and uh, asked an uncle Luigi that was over there, and he really got to show me. They all lived in these big high-rises in the village, big apartment buildings, but right next to the apartment buildings were these, these essentially community gardens of plots of land where they all got to, to grow fresh vegetables, and that was really, it wasn't a thing that only some people did. Really, it was part of the culture there was great culture surrounding food and eating and community and, and family and that was just really deeply embedded in, into the culture there. And, you know, growing up in the suburbs, we still tried to carry on some of those traditions. It wasn't, it was definitely, it was much different uh, once folks got here. But I definitely draw on some of those experiences, both the alienation of the suburbs and growing up in kind of a, a almost a, a placeless place, but then some of the some of the characteristics and stories that, that grew out of those, and and really grappling with growing up in a in a culture that was different from that that my parents grew up in, but trying to retain some of those traditions, and and I remember as a kid. Uh, we grew up right next to my grandparents, and remember going over to my grandparents' house, and they definitely had big cherry trees and grapes, and we took peas together, and there was just such some fond, fond memories around the culture and the relationships that are built around these rituals surrounding harvest and planting, and 
and the seasons that go along with that. So, so yeah, thinking about how that really influenced my work, the, the retaining of some kind of traditions and culture in a place that tries to really force you to assimilate and look like everyone else. So how do we start to really explore our own histories? And I think a lot of times, you know, we, we, we get to go back and draw on a little bit about what we know about where we came from in order to really go forward and build a, build a new world that draws on a lot of those traditions. And I think that, to me, is what, what excites me about permaculture. It's, it's not just about going back to some romantic form of history where everything was just great. You know, it's definitely drawing on some of those stories and traditions, but it's, again, mixing up with you know, what we've learned in the, in the meantime and drawing on the, the, the histories and ecological patterns, but looking at where we go next with it. So I'll share another story about you know, how I started doing this work. And a lot of that ties back to you know, one thing we also have in common, which is the, the great state of, of West Virginia. Yeah. And you know, what a what a beautiful hidden gem of a, of a of a state. And you know, I went to West Virginia, far away from the suburbs of Philadelphia. It's a beautiful, wild, magical place. And while I was studying there, you know, I went to college to get a job to follow the to pursue the American dream. But when I got there, you know, it wasn't it wasn't too long after. I started to learn about what was going on in, in Appalachia and unfortunately it's still going on today, which is mountaintop removal. And, you know, I remember getting to travel down to the southern coal fields out to Seaford Mountain where we met a man named Larry Gibson. And Larry Gibson was a truth teller. He had grown up in the hollows of, of, of West Virginia and had many generations of family that um, that were really deeply rooted there. And Larry was the last standout in, in his town against the coal company. And what he was doing was inviting people down to actually see the effects of mountaintop removal. So we, we pulled up to, to Larry's homestead and, and piled out of the cars. A bunch of us from the Virginia University went down. And he walked us through his property and took us out to his family's gravestone. So he actually could point to several generations of his family sitting on that, that hillside, buried there. And then we traveled a little bit further out to the edge of his property, and, and he, he, he walked us out to the edge. And I remember looking out the edge of his property, and, and all around... And the whole vicinity was just, it was just a race. It was, it was totally wild, and it's, the image of it, of it is forever etched in my brain. And the only way I can describe it is, is the moonscape. really looked like what was once a really thriving town of, of hillsides and trees and houses and people. It's just gone. And, um, you know, I remember thinking when I saw it that you know, I didn't really have any sense of where my energy was coming from. I didn't really have to think about it before then. You know, I could just turn on the heat 
the heat came on, flipped on the lights, the lights came on, or flushed the toilet, you know, stuff went away, put out the trash. Really, we have this whole culture that's designed around hiding those external factors and really key costs. Not only on the on the planet, but also the people that that are impacted by those processes. So when that happened, we got to stand on the edge of the mountain. It really, for me, unveiled that, and I could no longer keep my home my home up without thinking back to really different and back to Cascade Mountain and and really seeing the effects of of my use of fossil fuels were and. Um, I also remember that that Larry shared with us just the the threats that he was getting from the coal company for being a truth teller, and how difficult it was to stand out in that community against the coal company that for so many people was their livelihood. So the the coal company in West Virginia, it was it was tough to to go out against them, and so to me that really it really also had an impact that their this company was so powerful and had wielded so much leverage in, in that area that to go against them was really taking your life and putting it at jeopardy. So but you know, again Larry was so rooted in that area and he just felt so tied to those mountains and to that landscape that really he was so talking about how teleculture is also a strategy of diverting Money and time and other resources away from this industrial, um, you know, this industrial system and into more of a generative, regenerative and regenerative system that's based on first care, people care, and fair share. So how do we actually shift? Even if it's just a small percentage, even if you're just diverting and you're not. That you're, you're spending most of your food bill on food that's grown locally or products that are that are sourced ethically, and how can we begin to stop sending resources towards things that we really don't support and start spending resources, you know, where we have it and in whatever form that looks like, um, into things that we really stand by ethically, in order to, to facilitate some of this some of this shifting. That needs to happen. So, yeah, I was just really interested in some of these Hongdon's thinking about how, you know, he thought that peak oil was going to be that thing that all of a sudden we would stop, you know, start, start shifting into, you know, as he calls it, an energy defense culture uh, because of how much it was going to cost to extract the fossil fuels out of the earth and, and the amount of energy that we were getting from that. But that didn't really happen. It was just like the system was able to create energy out of tar sands, and now we're spending a lot of energy into fracking. And so, yeah, it's like this desperate last plea of seizing every last fossil fuel out. And so, yeah, just trying to get the fix in a, in a different that last drop, without really honestly just shifting over and saying, well. Even if it wasn't just about the amount of energy it takes to get this coal out of there, we're not even dealing with the, the carbon that's being released you know, from burning that fossil fuel. We haven't even felt the full effects of that uh, being released. So how can we just start to, you know, start to visualize the systems that we do want and start to really take time 
to, to talk about what that looks like and break it down in our own communities and by, by having conversations really in our own neighborhoods and regions about, well, what does an infrastructure that would actually be enhancing air quality and water quality and making people happier, what does that actually look like? And we can draw on the lessons that we've learned and the principles of permaculture to, to really guide us in a way towards what, what actually is appropriate, what's based on an ecological reading and, and really the, a culture of a place. And we can start putting energy into to creating this. And it really is a more, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more rewarding and, and doing this creative work of imagining and visioning and then working towards the world that we do want to see. And I think we've got a lot of great models that we can draw from and um, other movements that are working. We, we were talking today about the, the Black Panther survival programs. It's been a huge inspiration to me. And, and to realize that they saw a need in the community and and we were, we were looking at really how how large some of these programs were. And really the free breakfast program that they started spread out, I think it was 12 other cities, and they were feeding 20,000 kids. 20,000. Yeah, other than you know, Chicago, New York, which is, is happening in many other cities. And it wasn't just a few hundred kids <laughs> that they were feeding, it was 20,000. 20, so that's that's a huge, and that was one of 60 programs that they said, you know, this is what our community needs. And it was also linked to more of a political vision and a political demand. And I think that that's what I'd love to see permaculture, you know, address more. You know, it's, it's how do we start thinking about systems of governance and how can we apply principles and ethics to the way that we have power to make decisions over the things that really affect our lives. And right now, we, we don't. We don't have much power to actually decide where energy is coming from or how much our living wages is. It's a very it's a representative, if that, democracy. So how can we start to really get together in a, in a new way? And really, how do we make decisions horizontally? How do we make decisions really democratically? And um, how do we really engage with other community members and honestly get off the internet, <laughs> you know, get into the streets and talk to one another about things that really matter in our communities and, and start to, to take some actions. And, and I think that we're in a critical political climate right now where a lot of people are waking up and saying, well, I don't believe in the, the Democratic Party is going to save us and it's really... You know, when we're really looking at, at it, that drastically different from you know some of the, the Republican Party that we have in now. Um, you know, it's like different sides of the same coin. And if we even look at Congress, you know, we look at who's making decisions, and you know, if we look at the percentage of millionaires that are actually in Congress, is extremely high versus the amount of millionaires that are actually of the people that they're represented, representing. So they don't really have the same lived experience that most of the people living in this country do. And so how are they able to make decisions on behalf of people that they don't really 
share and experience with. So how do we really take power back when we're creating different solutions in our in our communities of a regenerative future? How do we actually make those decisions together as a community and also not just wait for them to be handed down to us from even, you know, the government system or, you know, being really told what to do, we really need to, to think on our own community, in our own communities about what we want to see and really how to get there because we're the ones that are going to make this just happen. As people want to claim more say in what happens in the world around them, they are also going to, we are all going to, they, whenever these pronouns get slippery, it's like who is we, who is us, but generally the collective of our culture is going to need to create more ability to produce what it is that it depends upon in some manner that's more close at hand, meaning that this abstracted reality that at present we find ourselves in where so many of the goods and the materials are coming from so far afield, there's no matter how uh, thorough of a job we do at a inclusion, if the decisions aren't being also in effect made about things that they actually have a relationship to, then it, it still leads to this disconnection between the effects that people are having on the world. And so part of what permaculture is suggesting is we need to kind of shrink the fear of uh, removal that's going on of so many of the uh, material goods and the real uh, physical day-to-day -day as we're talking about the where does the electricity come from, where does the food come from, where do these things that at present often come from very, very far away and involve a lot of uh, manufacturing and processes be brought to our homes for consumption that in order for us to really have a sort of cooperative power with rather than a power over kind of relationship to the natural world and to populations of people we're going to need to start to uh produce more of those goods within a reasonable distance to where people live so that they've got that autonomy that uh, connection that ultimately when we talk about things like power and the ability to have I think these things that ultimately people really do desire like control <laughs> As much as we might like to imagine that we don't want to have control of the world, I think ultimately there's a psychology that does need to have certain things in place that 
are what we like about this thing that we call control, which is the sense of security, the sense, the, the ability to know that things are just going to be solid. Right? And it's what Joe Pierce talks about in developmental psychology. He calls this unconditional love. Like, how do we know that we're just going to be taken care of? And that's why permaculture wants to bring it home when we think about how are we having dinner on the table? How are we having clothes on our back? How are we having all of the things that just basically enjoy? How are they? Where is it? Are they just right there? Are they close at hand? Or do they involve some crazy hyper-extended import-export global system of trade in order for us to have, like, dental floss at night when we want to clean our teeth? <laughs> so, permaculture gets down to the real nitty-gritty of what's the dental floss made out of, you know? Where... <laughs> Where did your toothbrush come from? How were your socks made? And where did that steak come from on your plate? And so as we begin to have those things come from a more reasonable distance, we really will see a new world emerge as far as the ability for a economy that I like to call truly by the people and for the people. So thanks for listening. And Lisa and I have been having fun, hanging out, exploring some themes here. And we look forward to any thoughts or feedback or any questions you might have. Drop us a line. I'll be uh, sharing some more thoughts soon.